Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. One of our favorite things to do on the show is to break down lessons in product design, and a common one is that good design is simple and straightforward. But supporting all the pixels and interactions we create are the simplest element of all. That's words. A short snippet of copy sets the tone for a user's experience, and ultimately it can make or break whether or not they're able to find success with their products. So to better understand the role and impact of words in design, I'm joined in this episode by John Saito, a UX writer over at Dropbox. If you're a Dropbox user, John's quietly written much of the language you've encountered in their core product and its apps. The goal is to not have your words be noticed. It just becomes like the seamless experience. More visibly, John's best known for his medium essays, which cover everything from how we can improve push notifications to the core principles of his trade. Short beats good. Um, and I love that phrase. It's like in UX writing, it's, it's, it's more important to write in just a few words than it is to actually be more accurate. And going back a bit, John was actually the very first UX writer at YouTube, where he developed the product's original style guide. I talked to a bunch of different teams, from like our marketing teams to our design teams and, and, and so on, to kind of figure out, you know, what do you think YouTube's voice is? If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom interviews, you can subscribe to the show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're over there, we'd be forever grateful if you shot us a rating or a review. It helps new people find the show, and we appreciate all the feedback we can get. And now, let's hop in the studio with John Saito. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. To get started, you're a UX writer at Dropbox. So what exactly does a UX writer do and where might have our listeners seen your work on display? Yeah, so a UX writer basically focuses on the the product itself. And so for our product, we have a bunch of different surfaces, uh, which includes like the desktop, we call it like the desktop client. Um, so we have a little app for that desktop. We also have, you know, Dropbox.com on the web. Uh, we also have apps for Android and iOS and Windows phones. And I think we also have like apps for for things like Xbox and, <laughs> and random services like that. But a UX writer will work on the mostly the UI content for all those different surfaces. But it could also include things like uh, maybe some email notifications or like push notifications that you might get in your phone. Um, basically any words that you might come across in your user experience. I think some listeners at a glance might think, oh, okay, so you're a copywriter for inside the product. But I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. I think so, at least in my mind, I think of UX writing, there's like two different kinds of writing within UX writing. Um, one is the, the copywriting side. And so the copywriting side tends to be a, a little more, I don't know, punchy or flowery or like these are things you might find on the like the landing page of, of Dropbox.com. Like when we're trying to get you to maybe get excited about a product. And so, you know, the language has to be a little more exciting, right? Um, but you can't always be exciting in the like, daily interactions if you're like constantly you know saying really clever things in, in the ui it gets really annoying um, and so that's like the second side of ux writing it's it's more like a, like this transactional navigational kind of copy um where the, the main goal is is almost to kind of get out of the way like you don't the, the goal is to not have your words be noticed it just becomes like the seamless experience um, and so as ux writers we we kind of have to juggle between these two different uh, kinds of writing throughout the day. 
It's interesting. You said sort of your the idea of your work is almost for it not to be noticed, to be seamless. And I know a lot of people have said that sort of good design is design that you don't notice, which brings me to your your title, UX writer. I've seen a lot of other people that do similar work be called content strategists, content designers. Are these terms interchangeable, one and the same? What's the deal there? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have this discussion with a lot of people and I, I always get a lot of different opinions on it. I think the reason why there are so many of these different terms is because like maybe one is this discipline is very new and I think we're trying to figure it out for ourselves. Like, what is this thing that we're actually doing? Um, I think maybe one of the reasons why Dropbox uses UX writers is I think we at the time maybe we were like looking at other companies and and Google had been using this term UX writer as well and that might have played a big factor into what we're doing. Like the the term that I'm gravitating towards lately is is like product writer. So I'm seeing more and more companies starting to have this role called a like a product writer, like Slack calls their team product writers. And so I like the term because it it's kind of analogous to a product designer. And so as a product designer would would design products like apps and, and websites and stuff, um, I think a product writer would collaborate with a product designer to work on those same things. But yeah, and, and Facebook uses the term content strategist. And to my knowledge, very similar to what UX writers do. And, you know, I think content strategists, it has this feeling of it's more important. Like it's because of the word strategy, it's like this all-encompassing strategy for your whole product. But when it comes down to it, you know, I think there is some of that. But at least for my role, a lot of it is writing. Like I'm, I'm writing the text that people see in the interface. Yeah, and I've also seen terms like content designer. Um, and I think that's more appropriate for people are, who are like roles where there's a really heavy design focus. Like you really are a designer. It's just you happen to have a lot of content in your product. But yeah, there's a lot of different terms for us. I think we're still figuring it out. But at least at Dropbox, we use the term UX writer. Well, I want to get into the work you do at Dropbox and the principles behind it here in a minute. But first, I'm going to take a quick step back. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were actually the very first UX writer hired at YouTube in March 2013? Yes, that's right. So what was it about the state of YouTube at that time, because it wasn't really in its nascency, that made it the right time to bring your skill set on board? Yeah, I think at that time, like Google in general didn't have many UX writers. I, I think... Um, Back then, I guess, what is it, 2013, I think teams were starting to realize, oh, maybe it might be nice to have a writer on a design team. And there was this one writer who I, I believe is the first UX writer at Google. Her name was Sue Factor. And she did a lot to kind of define the discipline at Google. Like she created a lot of the early documentation about what UX writing is. And I think over time, people started kind of noticing that need. And, and so around that time, I think YouTube was in the process of really expanding and they realized you know, we have this growing team of designers, but maybe we should also have a writer to kind of focus on our language because like Dropbox, YouTube actually has tons of different services from, you know, gaming services to the TV, to the to the websites and apps and so on. Um, and they kind of wanted to have one writer to kind of oversee like the language across all these different services. And so, yeah, I was lucky to to be hired as the first writer there. And, uh, you know, within a couple of years, we, we slowly grew our team to, um, I think, Four, four or five writers uh, by the time I left. So YouTube, Google, Dropbox, these are obviously fairly large companies. And most of our listeners are from earlier stage startups. Are you seeing more startups bring UX writers on board earlier? And is there a benefit to that? Yeah, I think so. I have a close friend who works at Gusto. They're like a small startup focusing on like HR 
services. And his role is slightly different. So he's a UX writer, but he's also like a marketing writer. And companies like that, like the main advantage to having a, a writer is that it helps your brand, right? It, it differentiates your brand from other competitors out there who may not be focused so much on language. And so startups have this advantage that they can really experiment with their brand a lot um, and they could take riskier chances. And having a writer, I think is just so powerful. Like one way to kind of connect with your audience is, is definitely through your visual language, but also through your written language as well. And so I definitely see a value for having writers at small startups as well as larger companies. So I came from the, the magazine world and every magazine, when you get there, the first thing you do is sort of go through what is the voice of the publication? You sort of have to learn and harness that voice. Does, does a product have a voice? And is that something that like when your writer is on board earlier to start up, they can really help with? Yeah, I definitely think a, a product has a voice. Um, and that voice might evolve slightly over time. Um, but it's important to know what your voice is and to like document it. So at Google, at YouTube, at Dropbox, we've always had a style guide or at least some guiding principles on what our voice and tone should sound like. Um, and so for kind of newer writers or newer people who are thinking about like voice and tone, the basic principle behind that is, is like your voice tends to be the same throughout your product, but your tone changes depending on the scenario, right? So like the tone you might use for an error message might be uh, more empathetic than a tone than the tone you might use for like your landing page. And yeah, just as an example, at Dropbox, we have um, our voice and tone principles and our style guide. Um, our voice is to be simple, straightforward, and human. But we give a lot of examples on, on how to actually carry that out. So you mentioned uh, style guide, which I think is, is fascinating. What was your process for putting that together? At YouTube, since I was the first writer there, like one of the first things I really wanted to do was to put together that style guide because I realized oh my God, like all these people are coming to me with questions about like, do we use this term or do we use this term? Does this actually match what our voice and tone should sound like? And so I quickly, like within my first few weeks, was on a mission to like put together this style guide, knowing that it's that it would be like continually like evolving. And so to kind of do that, I, I talked to a bunch of different teams from like our marketing teams to our design teams and, and, and so on to kind of figure out, you know, what do you think YouTube's voice is? And so through those interviews, I helped to like put together this like rough style guide for YouTube, but it slowly grew over time and it started to include things like, you know, how to write for internationalization or things about grammar mechanics. Like, do, do we use like the Oxford comma or not? Um, do we capitalize certain buttons or not? And a lot of that just came from engineers asking questions like, what is the right style for this? And, and over time, uh, that style guide just grew and grew and grew. So that was the deal with YouTube. Um, at Dropbox, I actually joined after the style guide was initially created. And so I had a manager and her name was Lisa Sanchez. And she, to put together the Dropbox style guide, I think, I just talked to her about this recently. Um, she actually coordinated like this offsite. So it's hard to like work on big projects like this if you're like constantly, you know, in the weeds working on UI copy every day. And so I think when she had this idea for the style guide, she actually did like this two-day offsite, I believe, with different writers across Dropbox to kind of figure out, okay, what should the style guide include? What should the purpose of the style guide be? What should the audience be? And so on. Um, and they kind of came up with this rough framework for the style guide. And over time, yeah, it, I think it, it grew in the same way, kind of like the YouTube one grew, where you kind of you feed it with questions that you get or things that come across as you start writing, you realize, oh, I, there are actually different ways to handle this. Like what should Dropbox's way be? 
So now we have this Dropbox Saga, which which I love. It's it's like I refer to it all the time. We keep it in Dropbox paper. So it's just like a, a document that we can just update. A living document. A living document, yeah. And in terms of like maintenance, we have a, a team, a few writers across the company who basically meet every month and we talk about changes or updates to the style guide and we discuss, okay, do we capitalize words after a colon or, or not? Or it could be like heftier things like, how do we describe this feature to, to people? So we meet every month, make updates every month, and it's probably viewed hundreds of times <laughs> like a, a week, um, or at least I view it, it seems like hundreds of times a week. But uh, that's, that's uh, our style guide in a nutshell. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So going a little bit more high level than the uh, minutia of ellipsis and capitalization and everyone's favorite, the Oxford comma debate. I know at our, our content strategy team has three guiding principles for what they write. So that our product speaks naturally the way that people speak. Uh, the product speaks directly to the user, but never for the user. And that the product helps the user getting them through complex ideas. I'm curious, like, are there similar principles that you guys have at Dropbox? So, yeah, yeah, we do definitely have voice principles is what we call them at Dropbox. And so they are to be straightforward, helpful, and human. Straightforward touches on the fact that we want to be, like, honest and transparent with users. We don't want to use super vague language (laughs) because we feel like we... You know, especially when it comes to Dropbox, like security is really important. And so we want to be transparent. Uh, the second principle is around being helpful. And so oftentimes, rather than just telling people, hey, there's an error here, we, you know, we try to help them. Like, how do you get out of that error state? Or Pre- Preempt what the follow-up would be, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think like a user might want to do and how can we help them get there? And then the third thing is to be human. And so that touches on the style of, of talking or writing. And so it's like you're talking, you're, you're like a friend just talking to the people like a human. Um, and so a lot of the times when um, I'm reviewing copy written by some somebody else, sometimes it tends to be a little more technical. Like I can never imagine myself talking like that 
with another person. You'll say it out loud, Trey. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I, just the other day, I think I came across this 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 message that said something like, "Dropbox cannot complete this request. Um, there was a transient network error." Like, and which is what went on. Like, this was a real error message. It might even still exist in our in our product today. Um, but as you know, when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, oh my god, this is totally off brand." And so something like that, you know, it's just kind of rewriting it to make the the language sound more human. I know another tool you've created for yourself that I think is really interesting is you've written your own thesaurus. <laughs> well, walk me through why you did this and what your process was, because to me, it's almost like a UX writer's pattern library. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so I actually got the idea at YouTube because I did something similar there. But like one of the main reasons I, I created this, well, I call it a thesaurus. Um, it's not technically a thesaurus. It's more like this, like this tool for brainstorming around certain concepts. So I found that I was, as I was writing, especially stuff that, that was more like copywriting, like stuff you might find on a landing page or talking about user benefits, I realized there were certain like user benefits that I was constantly writing about. So at YouTube, it was things like maybe music or um, access, like being able to access your stuff on the go. And there's like so many different ways to refer to this. At your fingertips, on the go, access everywhere, anywhere. And I realized, oh my God, there's like all these like similar phrases that I'm constantly using. Why don't I just like document them somewhere so that I don't have to like constantly go back and do this brainstorming process every single time. And so at Dropbox, it's, it's something similar. I can't remember the exact buckets now, but I think there are things like there's this bucket for collaboration because that's like a common theme that we use at Dropbox. And so better together, <laughs> um, collaborate. And, and, and yeah, so they're, they're built around these, these, these common themes that we might write. And so if you look at the, the source, there aren't too many of these themes, but each theme probably has like dozens of different ways to talk about it. And so I find it really helpful as I'm starting to work on something new and I just need to like feed my brain with, <laughs> with these words that get me in like the writing mood. Do you share that with your wider team or is this a personal thing for you? Oh yeah. So um, I don't know how often like the whole team uses it, but it definitely has come in handy at, for, as a, like a team-wide tool. So recently we were working on this project where we weren't sure like how to actually position the, the product. And so we put together like three landing pages, like three landing page options, all with different user values. And so we used the source to kind of populate the language for those three landing pages. Um, and then and the goal was to like show that to users and see which ones they kind of gravitate towards. So how how many UX writers do you guys have on your team right now? How's your team structured? Um, yeah, we have, let's see, I think we have five UX writers now with uh, six one coming on board very soon, later this month. So we technically sit in the product design team. And at Dropbox, there are kind of three pillars or three groups within the design team. So there's like the product design team, which the writers are part of. There's also a brand design team, which works uh, very closely with like marketing. And then there's also uh, the research team. And the research is like embedded also within at least different projects. So within product design, then are you are you attached to a particular product or does people, do you guys float around and touch every, everything that you guys put out? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Dropbox, like many other growing companies, um, we go through like a lot of reorgs. It seems like almost every year we might go through a shuffling. And so the way it is right now, there are kind of like two main groups, one group focusing on like more the, the paid features, another group focusing on like the everyday Users, um, and so I, I work on the side 
that works on like the everyday features. And so examples of things that I might have worked on are, you know, like we recently redesigned the website, um, worked a little bit on that. And some of the newer features we launched, like there's a document scanning tool on Android and iOS. And there's a tool for like signing your name on PDFs on iOS and things like that. You're essentially a writer that's at the intersection of engineering and design then. So how familiar does a UX writer need to be with the tools that those those folks use, designers and engineers? Are you expected to make changes directly in the code base? Oh, yeah. Like, it's, I think we're looking into things like that. Um, at the moment, we're not. Uh, so we had similar processes at, at Google and Dropbox, but I don't ever actually go into the code and, and like update strings or anything. But sometimes as an engineer... Um, we'll be like creating strings in the code. They might loop me in and say, hey, can you take a look at this passage of text or something? Or can you take a look at these few error messages and let me know if they're okay? And so that's how I, I might work directly with engineers. A lot of times designers will kind of focus on like the main flow. And sometimes they do work on like some edge cases and error cases. But the fact is like engineers have to like create like scenarios for all the edge cases. And there are tons of these that, Maybe product designers don't always like think of every single one, but as a writer, like we will have to like <laughs> write these error messages, and so that's when we partner more closely with engineers to to write like for these really small edge cases. Or sometimes you know people may never actually see some of these really obscure messages, but uh, we need to have a message just in case something goes wrong. So getting a little more tactical here, something that I, I know about you through reading your writing on Medium, which I can't recommend enough, we can follow you at Jay Saito, is that you're a writer who actually hates to read. And <laughs> I, as someone that works with words most of the day myself, I can relate to that and that the last thing I want to do when I get home sometimes is open a book and look at more words. <laughs> we, we may be a little bit uncommon in that regard for a field, but the fact is a lot of people do hate reading on the web um, and you're writing for the web in many cases. So how does a UX writer make that easier for people? What t- what tools or tips can they use? Yeah, there's there's tons of different techniques and I, you know, covered some of them in, in that Medium post. But, you know, like scannability comes up a lot. Like readers on the web don't technically like read word for word. They just kind of like, like glance around and, and scan copy here and there. And so in order to accommodate for that, a key principle in, in, in UX writing is just to be as brief as possible. And that often means just being really ruthless. Like I, sometimes you really want to say a lot of things, but it, you know, if you say too much, they may not read anything. And so like Sue Factor, who was that first UX writer at Google, she had this wonderful phrase, which I love. I mean, I constantly find myself saying it like during the course of a day. It's, it's like short beats good. Um, and I love that phrase. It's like in UX writing, it's, it's, it's more important to write in just a few words than it is to actually be more accurate. And, you know, there are opportunities where you can get, you know, you can talk more in depth, but it's not like the key navigational elements or it's not for like the, the headings, like those you should keep really as, as short as possible. Um, and if you do need to explain things, there are other ways to do that, you know, through progressive disclosure where you're kind of like giving a little bit information little by little, or maybe you can document that. Maybe some of that information should actually belong in, in, in documentation or maybe in an email or something else where there's like more real estate to talk about. But yeah, I think that short beats good phrase is like. That's your, your credo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I credit Sue Factor from Google. I, I don't know if you guys do internationalization at yes. Dropbox. Yeah. Does that, does that make that work difficult then? 
yeah, the, the way internationalization works, at least for the product um, at Dropbox, is you know we, we write strings that get translated by translators, and often uh, as things get translated, um, especially into European languages, they tend to get longer, right? They sometimes they some things could even like double in size or triple in size, like really depending on the words being used. And so having shorter text is actually a lot better for translators because it won't break your designs when your text gets super long. But if you're wondering, like, does it make things more difficult to translate? Well, we have a way to like attach comments to each one of our strings. And so that's how we give context to translators. So if we use the word auto or something in the comment, we can explain, you know, where this, this string appears, is it, is it referring to auto as an, an automobile or auto as an automatic? And that's kind of how we communicate with our translators. What other complications for a UX writer does, say, you're a, a product that isn't currently offered uh, in other languages, but you're going to make that move? What other complications does a UX writer need to be aware of when that comes into play? Yeah, um, you know, there's a common examples like certain idioms or if, if you really want to be, like I found, like, the more playful you are, the harder it is to localize. And that's that's something to keep in mind, especially for if you're like a, a startup. So startups, you know, tend to be a little, little more playful in their language compared to like these ginormous big companies like Google or or uh, Microsoft, you know. We're going after enterprise <laughs> businesses. Yeah. But that, I think that like, I, I love that challenge. I love like, how do we like capture this, this, this helpful human uh, tone and, and make it like a little bit more delightful, like in all languages. And like one way we do that is like through this context building. So, you know, like one thing I do sometimes is um, I will write actual alternatives for other languages. Like, like there, there might be something that I, that I really want to use in English and I know it, it'll be difficult to translate, but I'll give like an alternative. Like if you really cannot, there's no good way to translate this in your language, you can translate it like, like this, which is a little more, maybe a little less playful, but at least it won't like block translation. But our translators are are good. Like they they will. F I'm constantly amazed about how they can like keep our voice and tone consistent across all languages. Looking forward a little bit and keeping voice and tone consistent as things like voice UI or every company's new chatbot become a reality. How do you see the role of words evolving as the amount of interfaces we design for continue to expand? Yeah, I think it's it's huge, and I think it's 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 one reason why more and more companies like. Are, are hiring these writers on their design teams because because language is now this critical part of design and the experience. And so I think it's just natural to want to have somebody who's just really knowledgeable about words, about semantics and, and style and, and word choice and tone. And I'm excited personally to, to kind of see this industry evolve um, and, and seeing more and more conversational UI. Awesome. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us. And again, our listeners can find your writing on Medium at Jay Saito. Cool. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. <laughs>